Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, the Tauranga by-election and what it means for next year's main event. Enjoy tonight, but we go to work tomorrow morning as a team and we go forward from there. Then, Te Pāti Māori has a new president and you might recognise him. Could John Tamahiri be the person who decides the shape of the next government? And despite the concerns of numerous senior officers, police have decided to restart aerial cannabis operations. We've got internal documents to share with you that question what these helicopter missions are actually achieving. But we begin this morning with New Zealand's newest Member of Parliament. National Sam Uffendell has just been elected as the new MP for Tauranga. Uffendell received more than double the votes of his nearest competitor, Labour's Jan Tanetti. And here to run us through the numbers is One News Deputy Political Editor Mikey Sherman. Kia ora Mikey, thanks for being with us. Just talk us through the results. Morena Tato. Well, it's certainly the results that the National Party would have been hoping for with Sam Uffendale out in front at around 11,000 votes ahead of Labour's Jantanetti, who ended up on around 5,000 votes and Axe Cameron Luxon on 2,000 votes. It's certainly an increase for Sam Uffendale on what Simon Bridges managed at the 2020 general election by about 12 to 13 per cent. So a solid margin uh, there for him. And it's certainly reflective of the polls that we were seeing not only in the lead-up to this by-election, but also just in general for the National Party. And yes, voter turnout was low at just 40%. And yes, this is a safe blue National Party seat, but it doesn't take away from the fact that this was certainly a solid result for National. Yeah, not a great turnout, but a, a substantial result, and one that differed quite significantly, it must be said, from the Q&A Cantar poll we released last week. Mikey, just tell us, what does Sam Uffendale intend to do as Tauranga's new MP? Well, look, he'll be taking over the old office of his new boss, Christopher Luxon. Uh, the National Party leader was quick to point that out, so perhaps a good omen of things to come for the new MP. But of course, he has a background in finance. He also owns a small business in terms of organic fertiliser. And he has a member's bill that he's keen to put in tackling gangs as soon as he gets into Parliament. So a few options there in terms of what he might pick up in terms of a spokesperson role, but no decisions yet. But look, here's what uh, Sam Uffendale had to say in his winner's speech last night. Let's take a listen. Now, it's been really special and I just want to say to the people of Tauranga that voted for me and those that didn't vote for me, you know, I'm here for you and I'm going to deliver for you. I'm going to get our roads improved. We're going to tackle crime and gangs. We're going to ease the cost of living crisis and we're going to work to restore local democracy. Now, we held a debate with the three leading candidates last week on Q&A and Jan Tanetti told us at the time that she was realistic about her opportunities. Like you said, Mikey, Tauranga is traditionally a safe national seat. But how has Labour responded to the result? Labour is certainly putting on a brave face. They're saying that this is one of their better results in recent elections. But the reality is, is that it's around a 13 to 14% drop on what Jan Tanetti got at the 2020 general election. And look, while the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern was very quick to put out a press release congratulating Sam Uffendale on his win and thanking Jan Tanetti, the simple reality is that Jacinda Ardern hasn't visited Tauranga during this by-election. And if it were a priority for Labour, she would have been here. Instead, she was opening the ski season in Queenstown yesterday. What about the result for the ACT candidate? Uh, he received almost 10% of the vote. Well, look, ACT is riding high. They're on a wave at the moment. And quite literally, in fact, I was just out filming uh, their candidate, Cameron Luxton, who was surfing here on Mount Manganui Beach uh, recently. So, look, they're feeling good. Uh, they're saying that, look, one in ten voters wanted to see Cameron Luxton in Parliament. That's a good result for them. So they're feeling positive. Yeah, that's interesting. Looking forward to seeing those pictures on the 6 o'clock news this evening, Mikey. There was one other result that might be uh, of interest. Sue Gray received almost 5% of the party. That perhaps wasn't expected in some quarters. Can you talk us through that result and what the implications might be ahead of next year's election? 
Certainly. Well, if we're saying that a 10% voting result is good news for the ACT Party, then you have to say that a 5% result for an independent candidate, Sue Gray, who isn't in Parliament yet, is certainly noteworthy. Whether that's reflected across the country is another question. We haven't seen that yet, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. That is One News Deputy Political Editor Mikey Sherman at the base of Mount Maunganui. What a beautiful day here. Coming up on Q&A, one of the key figures behind the Three Waters reforms has just landed in Aotearoa and he's here. But next, we'll talk to the political heavyweight who could decide the outcome of the next election. Chief Executive, Broadcaster, mayoral candidate, cabinet minister, you can't say John Tamahiri hasn't had a varied and colourful career. But a quiet announcement last week could theoretically put him in one of the most powerful positions in New Zealand. John Tamahiri was elected unopposed as the new president of Te Pāti Māori at a time when the debate over the relationship between Māori and the Crown has a new intensity Tamahiri knows all too well his party could hold the balance of power at next year's election. John Tamahiri, tēnā koe. Good morning. Unopposed. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we opened up nominations and um, a number of the electorates just came back with knowing I was standing. And so that was quite pleasing to be um, voted in by acclamation. Why do you want to be president? um, I've had more in my generation. I've had more... Uh, yesterday's than we're going to have tomorrow's and so what it behoves us to do is put in place succession management and uh, Kahau Tarangata here's the Ahuani Waititi saying um, in, in his great educational book that he wrote in the 60s and um, what that says is uh, it's for, it's for uh, the older fishermen to hand over the, 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 the nets to the younger ones to, to go fishing to um, bring, bring home uh, the food for the tribe so what, what we're doing and what you're seeing across the whole of the Māori nation for the want of another way to put it is is that that succession uh, and handover to mm. people like Rawiri Waititi and, and, and them who are the first out of the gate from the promise uh, of the flourishing of our Kongareo movement and um, so that generation is uh, now playing a significant role and will continue to. Okay so, so to be clear you're one of the older fishermen <clears throat> in this. No doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. In 2019 you applied to be a member of the Labour Party and uh, yeah, when, yeah. When, you, when you were denied, you attempted to take legal action or at least considered it. So what has changed between wanting to be a member of the Labour Party and being president of Te Pāti Māori? Well, you've got to look at all the toolbox that are available uh, to advance uh, your people's interests. And uh, the Labour Party is merely one tool in the toolbox. Mm. Uh, national is, uh, act is, well, act isn't probably, it's a fucking shocker, but to put that to one side on Māori-related matters. Um, so so uh, Labour was uh, an opportunity to shift the whole conversation after nine years of a very grey government under John Key and, and Bill, and Bill English outstanding, uh, don't, don't get me wrong, but very grey. And so we had to change the dial up and um, between 2017 and 2019 uh, uh, um, it was quite an important conversation in yeah. our world. Okay, yeah, but you applied to be a member of the Labour Party, and, well, and, and when they denied you, you, you considered taking legal action. Oh yeah, I, 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 look, I'm, I will litigate if things are unfair, and um, I've had a very good result in terms mm. of success in litigation. My so, point is that you were so keen to be <laughs> to, to be a member of the Labour Party that you considered legal action, but now you're the president of, of Te Party Māori. Oh, yeah, so I'm I, wondering where your allegiance actually lies. No, no, well, my allegiance lies to my best interest of our people. And so, like I said to you, it doesn't matter what tools in the toolbox, you've got to reach the best tools to achieve the best results for your people. Now, I was made a member of the Labour Party when I was eight years old. Mm. There were only two tribes those days, National and Labour, and Dad was in the Labourers' Union, and he enrolled <coughs> me and my eight brothers mm. and three sisters already into the Labour movement. We, we have that uh, embedded in our DNA. Breaking away from that and liberating myself from that is also helpful. Has this government done a good job supporting Māori? This, this government has um, done a good job, right? And you, sh- you shouldn't be churlish. Uh, all governments do some good things. Uh, but um, the problem is, if I could give you one example, when you vote $11.1 billion into the health system uh, um, and then uh, $540 million of that is tagged for, for Māori, you're, you're actually building in the inequality uh, that we already had in the previous system. 
And so we've got to have more grown-up conversations uh, that if, if Pākehā people are allowed to deliver services to Pākehā people, um, there's this apprehension that if mm. Māori are delivering to Māori, there's something wrong with that. And that's just not right. And so Māori Party um, policy uh, has been successful in regard to the rise of the Māori Health Authority. And you'll, you'll see the innovation and the initiative there uh, change the dial in mainstream for the good. Just to be clear, as president, can you be a candidate as well? Oh, you can be. Look, but like, as I said in your introductory question, um, we're endeavouring uh, in my age group across the whole of uh, Māori yeah. leadership to changes occurring. Nahi uh, Wetumwana down in Kānunu shifting to another generation right. of leader, And it goes on and on. So I'm merely part of uh, helping that. So just to be 100% clear, are you going to stand? Well, I don't know that at the moment. Um, but you might. We might, yeah. And we'll work our way you, through You that. might. Yeah, that's a strong possibility. In Tāmaki. Possibility. Jim Anderton did it and so did a bunch of others. What, what are the seats in which Te Pāti Māori <clears throat> has the best chance of uh, defeating Labour outside of um, Wairiki? Yeah, well, Wairiki will, will become a fortress seat. What that tells our people, that uh, a vote for the Māori Party is not going to be a wasted vote this time, as it could have been in 2020. Uh, Tāmaki Makaura and the Taihauru uh, are, um, are definitely marginal and very tight marginal seats. And so we stand great chances uh, in those electorate seats. And we're very much an electorate party as opposed mm. to a party vote party. And a lot of Pākehās don't know uh, that they can vote for the Māori Party. They think you have to be on the Māori roll. Mm. Um, but that's not true. And you start to see that in some of the polls. OK, I, I'm just interested in your strategy here because I know you are a keen political strategist. Mm -hmm. so, so where do you think is the best chance that Te Pāti Māori will win one of those seats? Hauaudu? Oh, no doubt to Tahiru and, and uh, on um, a tide going out on Labour, and, and it is. Yeah. The, it's the extent of it. Um, Tamaki as we, well. We, Tamaki, no doubt. Uh, and then we have our um, eyes firmly fixed on uh, Taitokero as well. Okay, who, who's going to stand in Taitokero? Oh, well, look, the, um, the electorates have yet to confirm mm. and run the beauty contests that achieve mm. um, the candidate. Um, but uh, last elections, um, um, Kapa Kingi, um, Maria mm. Minoa Kapa Kingi is a, an outstanding candidate. No, I wouldn't be uh, worried if she uh, won the candidature again. What about Honi Hanawura? Honi um, has had some um, issue, personal issues inside uh, health with the family, not mm -hmm. him. And uh, he's committing to his whanau and to the setup of a lasting system up there. I called him the other mm. day. This is a bit cheeky of me, right? Yeah. I called him. Do you want to know what he said? No. I said, <laughs> too bad. I said, Horne, uh, would you ever stand again? And he said, quote, never say never. And I said, what do you think of the current iteration of Te Pāti Māori compared to the one that you were previously associated with? And he said, quote, I think they're doing an effing brilliant job, a lot more organised, a lot more focused. And I said, do you get along with JT? And he said, like a house gets on with a fire. I don't know what that means necessarily, but if Horne was open to it, is that something you would consider? Oh, well, Horne would knows he has to uh, put his nomination and, and run the race like everybody else. Uh, I'm not here I'm, as a party president. I'm here to build mm. a lasting organisation for a movement that will never go away in this country. It's indigenous <clears throat> based and um, it will continue. So Horne was, Horne was part of that journey and putting that in place. Right. And, and, and big ups to his wife too. A lot of people don't appreciate that. He could not have uh, achieved what he's achieved without Hilda. Debbie Naurewa Packer and Rawiri Maititi made it clear to us when we spoke with them last that they would not work with National in any future negotiations around the shape of a government. Are you of the same position? Um, we, we don't know what's going to happen. No, come on, JT. No, no, no. Um, under the present policy settings mm. uh, of uh, National and particularly ACT, it would be very difficult and that's what Rawiri and Debbie are saying. Um, but, but here's the thing. Let's have a look at um, how the cards settle uh, on election 2023. I know there's a lot of water to pass under the bridge, but I know, as I say, that you are a keen strategist. So, so what would be your approach? If Te Pāti Māori, in just over a year's time, finds itself in a position where it can decide the shape of the next government, how would you go about that process? Oh, no, I'm not prepared to um, uh, discuss that because I've just been elected. I need to have conversations with our national executive and we need to go back to our people on the street and the electorates to work out a due process uh, if that eventuality ever occurs. It will always occur with third parties that can tip um, major parties in, into mm. government. Um, but it's it just um, inappropriate at this point in time of my presidentship 
to embark on that conversation. Do you have a position as to a shape of government that you think would be most effective in progressing the status of Māori in New Zealand? Oh, look, the present travel of the present government is most helpful to that. How do you mean? Well, um, National and Act oppose uh, a Māori Health Authority, mm -hmm. notwithstanding all the evidence is screaming that it should occur. National initially uh, opposed Matariki Day with mm. Act. So, you know, everywhere that there is a positive Māori programme, uh, National and Act leadership uh, use us uh, to be demonised as Māori people. But do you think it's more effective for Te Pāti Māori <clears throat> to be outside of government? Well, look, I don't um, want to express my personal opinion now that I'm the president without mm. uh, coming into some communion with colleagues to be able to express that. And, and I, I'll be, while I'm, mm. I, I do write a number of opinion pieces, um, my uh, opportunities for hit-outs on programmes like this will be diminishing dramatically <laughs> because because Rawiri and Debbie um, hold the mana to do that. Mm. I want to ask you about Te Whanau Waipareira. Mm. You've been on the front line of the COVID-19 mm. response and, of course, there was a lot of attention on your organisations throughout the vaccination programme. How is COVID-19 affecting the Waipareira community at the moment? Oh, look, we, our main operations are out in the west, OK, and, that, and that's uh, from... <clears throat> Uh, or at Mount Albert, Mount Roscoe, going west uh, up to Helensville. And so, like all populations in this country, uh, they're deeply exhausted mm. okay, um, and over it. And it's just how we transition um, our people back into some form of new normality or whatever that might look like. Are you seeing whānau reinfected? Yes, uh, and the major vectors for that are the children um, uh, because of our um, low paediatric mm. vaccination rates. Um, that didn't need to be that low, uh, but um, but our babies are uh, now now that we can cuddle our mukapunas and what have you, um, mm. a, a lot more transmission is occurring, uh, both of flu as well as COVID. Are policy settings as they stand appropriate given the risk that COVID nineteen still poses even to vaccinated communities? Well, we've got to get through this winter, okay? And we we always set targets uh, yeah. out on our street that we've got to up our sanitation and hygiene uh, over the next 90 days to protect mm. the more vulnerable. Uh, and that's what we do. And, and people would say, oh, uh, masks are hopeless. Well, they're, they're welcome to that, but we will mask up, right? Mm. And that's what we ask of our people. Uh, and we ask of them to sanit uh, use sanitary products that mm. we are providing, sanitizers and the like. And so as long as you continue to provide public health jolts, strong public health messages, because our people can't afford all the luxuries that others take for granted mm. in middle-class New Zealand. Yeah. So we, we have to roll out a whole range of hygiene packs, etc. Well, some critics say the government has effectively given up on COVID-19. Do you have a position? Oh, I, I think they know that middle New Zealand uh, is over it and deeply exhausted as we are. Uh, but, but a number of populations can't protect themselves as well as um, middle-class Kiwis can. Mm. And middle-class Kiwis take it for granted that everybody uh, lives in their value system and their world, and that's just not true. And that's why, that's why we exist as the Māori Party, but also whānau waipareiras of this world exist. Mm. And we're really pleased to serve uh, all our communities. Yeah. You took legal action last year <clears throat> in the High Court to access Ministry of Health data around unvaccinated Māori. It took a big effort to get that data. What difference did it make in the end? Uh, we were able to identify now going forward uh, how to plan. For instance, mm. we have a major looming problem in the whole of the country. Uh, with children who are no longer engaged in education because they've been out of the system for two and a half years. Those babies need to be sorted out uh, in regard to being brought back into some form mm. of training, skills or, or education. Otherwise, they just... You see, we have a gang problem and it's increasing, but the government knows, or the state agencies know, and that's one of our biggest problems, is underperforming, overpaid bureaucrats. So um, our problem is we've got to get ahead of that curve rather than wait for the train wreck and then pick the pieces up after it. So the beauty about our data uh, analysis and, uh, and the like and our reach into that mm. has allowed us to plan on the street rather than wait for some bureaucrat in Wellington to tell us nine months after the event we should do something. Mm. All right, JT, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us if you like or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Coming up, as the government pushes ahead with three waters, we meet the Scottish expert who helped to shape the reforms. But next, sure, it looks cool, but even police are questioning the point of aerial cannabis raids. So why have they restarted them?
Hawke Maiti, we welcome back to Q and A. Last week, Thailand became the latest country to legalise the cultivation and possession of cannabis. Here, of course, Kiwis voted against cannabis legalisation at the 2020 election. Changes to the Misuse of Drugs Act have seen police apply discretion for a lot of low-level drug offending. But one part of the traditional prohibition model continues. Aerial cannabis raids. And despite internal documents which question the effectiveness of the helicopter raids, police have decided to restart them. For more than two decades, aerial raids on cannabis plantations have been an annual event in New Zealand. Police take to the skies, often with the support of the Defence Force, to find and destroy cannabis crops. But last year, police decided to scrap the annual raids. With the increased harm in many communities arising from other drugs, particularly methamphetamine, a one-size-fits-all annual aerial national cannabis operation no longer represents the most appropriate deployment of police resources. Across Aotearoa, senior officers were divided about the effectiveness of the raids. Internal emails seen by Q&A show that many senior officers thought the aerial raids weren't achieving much and weren't a good use of resources. In Waitemata, we don't see any worthwhile benefit to this operation being run in our district. The intelligence is not there to support the benefit realisation when our focus has been on other drugs. That view has now been underscored by more internal documents. Research for the Evidence-Based Policing Centre, released under the Official Information Act, shows there is little empirical evidence available to suggest that crop eradication has a positive impact on the supply and availability of cannabis. And it's not possible to determine the extent to which the operations have reduced the harm caused by cannabis in the community. Despite that, this year police decided to restart the aerial operations in six different districts. Unlike previous raids, which were funded through the proceeds of crime, former Police Minister Porto Williams confirmed the $635,000 for aerial operations now comes straight out of the police operating budget. What's more, although the total cannabis seizures by police have increased over the last few years, the percentage of New Zealanders using cannabis is also going up. At a time when police resourcing is under huge scrutiny, critics say the aerial raids are a waste of time and money. Well, Green MP Chloe Swarbrick has been a vocal opponent of the aerial raids and obtained the police documents which show little evidence they substantially reduce cannabis supply or harm from the drug. Kia Morena. What's your problem with aerial operations? Uh, well, I think first and foremost that they are indicative of the fact that drugs are winning the war on drugs. We've tried this approach for 40 to 50 years now, actually to only showcase that more and more people are using these substances, these substances are, get, substances are getting more harmful, and we are throwing good money after bad to get worse and worse results, actually. So what we're saying here and what the police's own internal documents show is that this is a waste of time and money, and we can deploy it to far better programs like Tiara Oranga. Okay, I've been through the documents and they are clear. There is little evidence that aerial operations have a meaningful impact on supply or meaningfully reduce harm, mm. but it says that there is little evidence. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> say those things are happening. Well, there is a distinction there, and it's mm -hmm. an important distinction. Yes, it is. And again, if we to reflect that uh, to the international research as well, uh, you can see that typically where there is a focus just on that supply end too, that you also end up with all the more uh, kind of uh, labs and people cooking all kinds of substances and continually trying to avoid that enforcement again. What we're looking at when we're looking at drugs, we have to say first and foremost drugs, whether they are alcohol, whether they are tobacco, whether they are cannabis, can cause harm. The next question then has to be, how do we sensibly regulate in order to reduce that harm? Because far from, we're not quite sure whether it's reducing harm, this current uh, annual cannabis operation. And again, you know, better part of a million dollars being spent on this. I can tell you for a fact, 000. I can tell you for a fact that deploying that money on the likes of Tiara Oranga, which is about reducing meth harm by uh, targeting people's demand for it and improving their lives, has a return of three to seven dollars for every dollar spent. Okay, but six hundred thousand dollars. I know it's a lot of money. 
In the grand context of Crown expenditure, in the grand context of the, the police operating budget, it isn't that much money. And I guess it's just another example of where, once again, drugs are winning this war on drugs, because this is uh, not only the money, if you look at to these internal documents and the correspondence mm. between police, it's also actually the time off that ends up accumulating by virtue of continuing to persist with these things, which the majority of district commanders don't want in the first place. And it also detracts from business as usual, which most police say is already targeted these kinds of substances too. When police halted the, the national operations mm. for aerial raids last year, they then threw it over to different police districts. Why shouldn't police officers who know their districts, presumably better than anyone else, have the be in a position to actually make calls about what is best given the drug profile of their community. Well, it's an interesting proposition, Jack, but it's not what's happening. So again, if you look into those internal police documents and the emails back and forth, actually, this program is now being deployed in areas where the area commanders did not want it to go ahead because mm. they thought that it was quote unquote an operation for sake of operation, that it was a use, uh, a waste of their time and their resources. And once again, it is simply about how do we best deploy these resources to actually reduce this harm in the first place, as opposed to the charade of tin soldiers up in helicopters. We've been doing this for 20 plus years now, and in fact, we've seen an increase in the consumption of cannabis. Who is being targeted by these raids? Well, uh, again, all we can go off is the stats that the police provide us because they don't break it down into granular um, catches. What we do know, though, speaking to those who've come forward to my office, for example, is that there's one couple who had uh, the police drop in on their backyard to spray three cannabis crops. Well, it's illegal. It is illegal, and once again, there's a range of illegal behaviour which is currently yeah. occurring across the country, and that's why the police also point out that this resources could be better, better deployed towards methamphetamine. And this is where I'll take you to Te Ara Oranga. So that's a programme that was established, actually, yeah. one of the final outgoing acts of the former national government in 2017, which looked at how do we improve people's lives to stop demand for methamphetamine and actually move towards more evidence-based, not only policing, but evidence-based drug harm reduction. And what they've seen, in the four or five years subsequent to that is that it is the most effective program that we know of in this country with regard to drug harm reduction. 34% reduction in offending and 3 to $7 return on every single dollar spent. It's a collaboration between mm. the DHB and police and if we could put that money into those kinds of programs then we would actually be walking the talk on drug harm reduction. Were the, uh, the couple that you know who had their three cannabis plants sprayed, were they charged? Were they arrested? Uh, so they're still working through that process but those those plants were being used primarily for medicinal purposes. But I mean, they weren't being prosecuted, were they? Uh, well, again, that, those, that couple is still working through that process and I wouldn't want to uh, you know, lift the veil of anonymity because they did come forward mm. for sake of blowing the whistle on this operation. And I think that's where it's incumbent on the police once again to showcase actually what is this doing to disrupt crime, to disrupt, disrupt drug harm in this country? Because in fact, again, the own, their own evidence-based policing documents show that it isn't having the impact that they seem to want it to. New Zealand has had an opportunity to consider legalisation and they voted against it. I know the margin was narrow, but the truth is they had their opportunity, they voted against it. So why should police not be enforcing, enforcing the law, mm. cracking down on illegality, even if they then choose not to prosecute these people? As the police, again, themselves have said in these internal documents, there's a number of ways that they can go about doing their jobs and there are always competing demands. The police themselves pointing particularly to methamphetamine harm as whether they want to be mm. focusing those resources. In fact, what we see, sending uh, police up in these choppers and deploying this across uh, you know, a number of districts mm. in this country is a suck on resources that could be better used in other places where there's still illegality going on. OK, would you, would you be satisfied for aerial operations to continue if they didn't use helicopters, if they used drones? Because <laughs> that is one thing police have been considering. That is one of the things that they have been considering. And once again, I just point you to the bald facts, which are that there has been good money spent after bad for 20 plus years, mm. we're talking tens of millions of dollars over that time, which has only serviced to simultaneously see us have an increase mm. in cannabis consumption and therefore potential harm. So do we want to just be seen to do something or do we actually want to do something that works?
And that's where I totally take your point that actually, yeah, it is incumbent on the government, it is incumbent on our new uh, Minister of Justice, if you're listening, the Honourable Kitty Tapu Allen, to change the law into something that works. Because what the police are operating with is a dog of legislation. The Frankenstein Misuse of Drugs Act 1975 is a thing that is driving this harm in the first place. Well, how do, what, what do you think the effect of the changes from 2019 in the Misuse of Drugs Act is happening on the prosecution yeah, and treatment so of drug abuse? What we've seen, um, so what you're referring to there, is the Section 7 amendments by virtue of particularly the synthetics crisis that we saw at something that I campaigned really strongly for and was glad to get across mm. the line, albeit not in the form that we wanted to, with New Zealand First and Labor last term. That enables the formalisation of what we call police discretion. So at the front lines, the police are able to say, we don't think that this person is going mm. to be best suited by going into the criminal justice system. Mm. But what you've seen there, as reflected in the data, is that, discrimina uh, sorry, that, that discretion can still enable discrimination. So we're still seeing over-representation, particularly historically and structurally marginalised well, communities. I've looked at this numbers that Ma Māori are, are benefiting from discretion at roughly the same mm -hmm. level as non-Māori. Māori are over-represented in the offending in the first place, though. Yeah, and again, that would come back to historical factors such as, again, the over-policing in certain areas. When you're talking about cannabis in particular, I think it's really important to point out that there's no data that showcases specifically that there is a massive increase in consumption in those different But there's a difference, areas. right? Like in, in, in saying, OK, well, because one of the concerns when those changes to the Misuse of Drug Act, uh, Drugs Act came through three years ago was that certain ethnic groups or certain communities would benefit from police discretion more than others. Mm. But from what we have from the evidence at the moment and internal police documents, it suggests that isn't happening. But nonetheless, I'd also say that I think most people wouldn't want police at the front lines to be acting as judge and jury. We can still say that we want effective mm. legislation that we know is going to be applied across the board in an equitable basis. Sure, there has been a relatively uh, kind of uniform application mm. on the front lines, but once again, what we're talking about is still that opportunity or that chance for people to get caught up in the criminal justice system and things to get a whole lot worse when there are those health-based opportunities to reduce harm. If aerial operations are not effective in reducing harm or significantly reducing supply, mm. why have they been restarted? I can't begin to tell you. So having poured through all of those OAAs and read through 70-odd pages of internal police emails uh, and, you know, a number of police actually speaking quite openly and mm. frankly about how much of a waste of resources they think they are, there were a number of recommendations out of an internal 2019 report which made points about how there had to be better communication mm. to the general public about the purpose of this if it was to go ahead. We didn't see that happen. There was also recommendations for there uh, to be planning starting in May and June. We didn't see that happen. In fact, a lot of this internal Much correspondence in comes from September mm. and October. We also know by virtue of my written questions to the former police minister uh, that there are three people in police national headquarters who are charged with running this operation centrally, despite the police simultaneously saying last year when they mm. decided last minute to ditch the operation that they didn't want to see it nationally coordinated anymore. So something isn't adding up. All right. Before we let you go, uh, there have been some changes to the Green Party constitution this year around the leadership. I just wanted to know, is there any circumstance in which you would challenge either James Shaw or Marama Davidson for the leadership of the Green Party this year? Mate, I, I didn't come into politics uh, to climb the ranks. Uh, I'm in the Green Party for a reason. It's because I believe in stuff and I want to fight tooth and nail to change those things, not for a career. So answer that question. Is there any circumstance? I do not intend to challenge our leadership, no. I'm very happy. All right. Chloe Swarbrick, tēnā koe. Thank you very much for your time. Kia thank you. After the break, more people are leaving New Zealand than are moving here. And as Chris Farfoy steps down from the immigration portfolio, we will ask what a national government would do differently. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Michael Wood is the new Immigration Minister after the Prime Minister announced a Cabinet reshuffle this week. But the change comes at a critical time in the COVID-19 recovery, as New Zealand loses more people than it gains. Statistics New Zealand says Aotearoa had a net migration loss of almost 9,000 people in the year to the end of April. Erica Stanford is National's Immigration Spokesperson. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Good morning. Are you surprised by those numbers? No, I'm not surprised at all. They're Why? very shocking. Why is that? Uh, I'm not surprised because when you break them down and you look at them, who are the people that are leaving? 
It's not Kiwis, it's migrants. And why are migrants leaving? Well, it's because we've got, or we've treated them so poorly over the last four or five years. They've been in queues that last a mile long. They've just been transferred into a new queue that lasts another two years. Uh, they've been split from their families. They've really just had enough. We keep shifting the goalposts on them. So all of those nurses, those teachers, those doctors, those truck drivers, people we desperately need here, have gone, well, thanks very much, but actually I've got a better deal in Australia, so I'm out of here. We've seen some significant changes to policy settings over immigration in the last uh, few months. When do you expect that net migration loss will become a net migration gain? I think we're in this for the long term. This is the first time we've seen a net migration loss since 2011, since the earthquakes, right? Uh, and I think we're going to be in this for the long term. And the reason being is because there is a global war on talent. So every country in the world is after those same amazingly talented migrants. Mm. And we are not putting ourselves in a position to be able to compete with the likes of Australia, Canada, the US, the UK, to attract the best talent. So I think this is going to be a trend for a long time. Not only not attracting migrants, but not being able to retain Kiwis in New Zealand. What role should migration play in our economic recovery from COVID-19? It's a huge critical factor. I mean, you look at Adrian Orr when he hiked the OCR for the second time just recently. Uh, his comments were that this is the biggest handbrake on our economic recovery. If we want to get ourselves out of the sort of death spiral of, of inflation, we need to grow our economy. And right now, we've got CEOs of businesses working on the shop floor. They can't grow their company because they're busy washing dishes or growing plants. Uh, and we've got, you know, you've seen uh, uh, restaurants in Queenstown closed two days a week. But how is that good for our productivity? How is that good for our economic growth? We need to be attracting the best migrants. And the policy changes over the last little while mm. have done exactly the opposite. OK, let's talk through some of those policy changes. So at the start of last month, the government introduced what it called an immigration rebalance, including a green list which targets professional migrants in 85 different high-skilled roles and gives them a fast track to citizenship. Do you support that process? Well, funnily enough, I'd say last year, if you go back and look at National's uh, policy around COVID, one of the parts of that I wrote, uh, and that had on it uh, a health workforce strategy where I said, look, give these people residence as they walk off the plane. We should mm. be rolling out the red carpet for health workers. We don't want to see people dying because they can't get into the emergency department mm. uh, and be seen, which is exactly what's happening right now. So that was our policy. It's taken the government over a year to put in place that exact same policy, but they still managed to bugger it up. We've still got nurses on a two-year wait for residence. They can go to Australia and get residence immediately. The same in Canada, the same in the US. There's Canada's no six months. I checked it out. Canada's, Canada's six months. US is a year to 18 months. So faster than New Zealand? Absolutely, but not necessarily immediately. Oh, they do have fast-track policies, though, and in Australia, you can go there straight away. I mean, our main competitor is Australia, right? Mm. They're our main competitor. They're the ones trying to get our nurses over there. And you can get uh, residence almost immediately in Australia. So if you were a nurse overseas, maybe in the Philippines or India or the UK, thinking, where am I going to go? Mm. Are you going to go to New Zealand where it takes two years plus visa processing time, which, by the way, takes 45 mm. months at the moment for an essential skills, uh, 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 sorry, a skilled migrant visa? Um, or are you going to go to Australia where, frankly, you're paid a bit more, uh, better cost of living, uh, and you can get residence immediately? So would you lose the two-tiered nature of the green list? Would you just have everyone on that green list, every single role, immediately able to apply for residency? I would probably be a bit more nuanced. Uh, and I don't have all the facts and figures, but certainly for those healthcare workers, the nurses, the midwives, straight to residence. There's no reason that they're on a two-year list. Mm. And I think we've proved that over the last few weeks with Farfoy making some misleading comments to the public around that. The others, you can certainly take a look at it because there is a really elegant solution in the Immigration Act, right? It's called mm. six, Section 49, which basically says you can give immediate residence to someone, but it is conditional on them working in their job or in mm. their sector for however long you want. You can put whatever conditions on you want. So if there is a reason to keep people in the sector or in their mm. job, you can use that section of the Immigration Act. I don't know why the Minister has chosen not to use that. For well, I mean, jobs. certainty is the issue for employers right now, right? And, and we put your concerns to Chris Farfoy and to Health Minister Andrew Little, and both of them said the reason that nurses, for example, are on that on the, the, the two-year list as opposed to the immediate residency list is because... Uh, there is concern that when they arrive in New Zealand, despite having agreed to take a job, they might then change jobs within a very short period of time. Well, if certainty is something that we're trying to give employers, yeah. isn't that a worthy consideration? Uh, not at all. That is completely ridiculous. Think about it logically. If you are a trained nurse overseas with years of experience, you come to New Zealand, you spend $10,000 doing a CAP course to get mm. registered, uh, you get your, your residence, 
You seriously think those nurses are going to go, oh, I've had enough of nursing, I'm going to go own a restaurant? Of course not. And to tell you what, the most important thing is none of the evidence is there to back it up. So I've had the minister mm -hmm. up on this and he was not able to provide a shred of evidence. He actually, he got it mixed up. What the real problem is, is that nurses are switching between aged care facilities and the DHB. Yeah. That's the problem. They're not leaving nursing. They're just switching between the two and the aged care providers. And fair enough, said, hey, look, can you help us out? by helping us uh, retain these workers for a few years before they switch. But isn't that the same thing? Certainty. No, it's not. All we needed to do was to say Section 49 of the Immigration Act, if mm. you come in to be a, a, an aged care nurse, you can have residence straight away, buy a house, do all those things, but you, mm. are, you need to stay in the aged care sector for two years. He's created the same, the, the, the same conditions still exist with two years. They can right. still switch between right. the two. So yeah. he, he totally buggered it up. The Productivity Commission has just released its report uh, into immigration settings in New Zealand. Recommendation 24, quote, the government should discontinue the issuance of new permanent resident visas for new residents and require new residents to renew their resident visas every six years. Would a national government support that? It's something we're certainly open to looking at. Um, I mean, you saw in... The global pandemic, all of these people come back mm. who hadn't been in New Zealand for 20 or 30 years, they were permanent residents. So there, there is an argument for that. Um, it's certainly something that we're certainly open to looking at. I mean, we've spent about $5 million on this report and I have a feeling that the government are going to quietly slide it to one side and, and not look at many of their recommendations because frankly, a lot of them are what I've been saying for a long time. But there are some other good points they make in there that are worthy of consideration. What role should iwi play in setting our migration uh, settings in the years to come? Well, a huge role. I mean, they're a treaty partner, right? And so they have a say in that. And I work really closely with the Māori members of my caucus uh, and also uh, the special interest group, the Māori special interest group that sit within the National Party around this. Uh, and certainly any policy that we come up with needs to be uh, consulted on with iwi as well. At the start of last month, uh, the government, in, uh, sorry, at the uh, interview with Chris Farfoy, he pushed back on his initial timeframes when it came to the issuance of uh, the 200,000 one-off 2021 special uh, fast-track visas. When do you expect those will be processed and completed? That's a really great question. So he said 80% in 12 months. And then he said 80% in 18 months, but still striving for 12 months. But actually, if you look at what they're on track for, uh, we're not on track to have them finished, 80% finished, uh, for well over two years. Mm. So, as I said earlier, they've taken the one big queue of resident uh, visas that they've had, and they've just transferred them to a new queue. And that is why you are seeing people leave New Zealand. One in five British applicants have had their residency decided from that list, but just one in 12 Chinese yes. applicants. Why is that? Well, that's because Immigration New Zealand are making them do a national security check. Uh, and they do that with certain countries. They've got a secret list. They don't tell anyone. We can pretty much work out who's on it. Uh, and they make them do an extra security check. And that security check takes mm. months and months and months and months. And so that's why you see that with Chinese uh, applicants and a few others as well. And they're, you know, rightly pretty upset about that. If a national government is elected next year, what would be an appropriate annual net migration figure for the three-year term? You asked Chris uh, Farfoy a very uh, similar question, and he didn't answer you. Uh, and he didn't answer you for a good reason, because it's so difficult to tell at the moment. We've just given, well, it was supposed to be 165,000 people residents. That's going to be massively blown yeah. out, right? Uh, so we don't know where that's going to end up, because there are a lot of overseas migrants being, being um, attracted into that policy uh, by way of family reunification. But the real question we need to be asking is not what's the upper limit? Because I tell you what, migrants don't want to come here. That's the problem we've got. Mm. The problem we've got is migrants are leaving. Net 8,700 migrants are leaving. We can't tr attract migrants here for love nor money at the moment. What we need to be looking at mm. is our immigration settings, but not only our immigration settings, our wider policy settings, because would you come to New Zealand right now with the cost of living, can't buy a house, someone's being shot at in Auckland every single night, so there's all of that to consider as well as to how we actually attract people here. But, but I'm interested to know, if, if you have your way and you are, you are able to adjust those settings in the way in which you desire, would we be looking at annual net migration of 50,000, 60,000 again? It would be irresponsible of me at the moment to say what that will be, given what we are actually steering down the barrel is of long-term net losses for quite some time. And I've talked to a number of uh, economists and they're saying this is going to be a long-term problem. It's all very well to go, oh, I'd like this many people to come. But actually, the difficulty is getting them here in the first place. This government have found that out. Um, and we'll probably be in a very similar situation where it's not about the upper limit, it's about just trying to get them in the door. And there are so many swing variables. How many New Zealanders are leaving? Mm. How can we attract uh, new migrants? So, you know, it, 
at this point in time, a year out from an election, and Farfoy couldn't even answer your question now, and he's the, he was the minister. Um, you know, you come back and ask me again in a year, let's take a look at how many Kiwis are leaving, mm. how many migrants we've managed to attract, um, and then we'll have another conversation. I look forward to that. Thank you very much. National Immigration Spokesperson Erica Stanford. After the break, a key figure in the Three Waters reforms has just arrived in New Zealand. Stay with us. Kia ora te welcome back to Q&A. 20 years ago, Alan Sutherland presented a report to Scotland's Parliament which led to the Scottish version of the Three Waters reforms. As the CEO of Scotland's Water Industry Commission, Alan and his colleagues produced an economic analysis on New Zealand's water amalgamation. In May last year, their report estimated that over the next three decades, between $120 and $185 billion is needed to address the water infrastructure deficit in this country. Alan Sutherland has just arrived back in Aotearoa. No mai, hi to mai. Welcome back to New Zealand. Thank you. It's good to be back. When it comes to the delivery of water services, how did the problems that Scotland faced 20-odd years ago compare to the problems New Zealand faces now? Do you know they're uncannily similar? Um, so we had issues with the quality of our drinking water, particularly in rural communities. We had beaches that weren't as safe as we'd have liked them to be for people to go swimming or paddling in. Similar, same with rivers and lochs. We had developers that couldn't get connections. And when we looked at what it was going to cost, it was quite scary. Why was amalgamation the answer? Do you know, amalgamation is part of the answer. It isn't the answer. Because what amalgamation was about was essentially being able to bring the right specialists together being able to attract the um, uh, capital into the industry that allowed for the investment to be made that would address the problems that I just mentioned. In a geographic sense, New Zealand and Scotland are very different. I yes, think about the, 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 the population bases in Scotland, for example, the vast majority of the population yes. are centred around e Edinburgh and Glasgow. Yes. So why would a reform programme that was appropriate for Scotland also be appropriate for New Zealand? Because it's not about the geography. Well, it is when it comes to the, when, when it comes to the individual organisations that will be running those water entities. Yes, but what it's about is having sufficient scale that you can have a good quality asset manager. You can have a professional hydrologist. You can have a finance professional that understands the bond markets. Mm. You've got the senior management that can lead and be credible in going to markets and asking for large amounts of capital in order to deliver a huge investment program. Mm. So it's about that credibility. It's not about um, the savings that you might make by hooking different rural communities together. It's about doing the whole system of delivery of capital and the operating of the assets in as most effective possible way. I want to take that sum that I know many people have focused on from your report of May last year. I'm sure year. they have. Yeah, $120 billion to $185 billion yes. is the funding shortfall that you have yeah. estimated over the next 30 to 40 years. That was before we found ourselves in this high inflation environment. What yep. would that figure be today? Well, that, that figure would still be the same in real terms because it wasn't a number that was taking inflation into account. So it was as of 2020 dollars, mm. right? That's the same number in 2020 dollars. It's actually quite interesting, this number, because it, I, I know it gets a lot of um, um, profile. But actually, if you take the 120 billion end of it, all that is doing is holding a mirror up to what's in council asset management plans, long-term plans, and what they say about their assets, mm. and totaling the numbers up. And that gets you to the 120 billion, right? The 180 billion is if you want to improve significantly, then that's, where, that's how you get to that number. Mm. I want to put to you some of the criticisms of the proposals and and there are a range of quite different criticisms as you know in New okay. Zealand so I'm going to put co-governance yeah. and that and that criticism to one side because I know that your focus is really on the, uh, the the economic and governance criticisms so if funding is an issue yeah 
Why should the shortfall not just be funded by central government without changing the ownership and governance structures of these water entities? So money is important, right? Um, but money's not the solution to the issue because what you need to have is the delivery of this investment program in the most effective way. And you really do need to have the skills in place to be able to define what you're going to do, mm. um, to scope it out in detail, to procure it, to manage the delivery of it, and then learn the lessons about what else you, you could have done a little bit better going forward, right? So it, it's not about, you know, money's only a part of the issue, mm. but it's not the issue. It's the professionalization and that requires a degree of scale. Tomata Arawai, the water services regulator, has just been established in New yeah. Zealand, which I know is one of the three legs to the stool of reform. If we have a regulatory body overseeing the water services, why should the governance structures and management be handled at a lower level, at a different level? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, well if, we have, if we have Tomata Arawai, yeah. why are those other governance structures necessary? If we have a water regulator saying mm -hmm. this is the standard that is required, yeah. why do we need those other forms? Well, you need to have um, professional management. You need to have boards that can hold a professional management to account. So the boards need skills of their own. And then, of course, there's the role for an economic regulator. And the economic regulator has got two roles, essentially. One is to make sure that the amounts of money that are being spent are appropriate. Mm. But then secondly, it's to ensure that what it's being spent on is the right thing and that, it's, and that what people say they're spending the money on is what they're spending the money on. So essentially, it's about a value for money. It's about how you make the big improvement in water services that you're aspiring to, affordable for everyone. You've estimated that amalgamating services will save as much as 60% in operational expenditure. But the government says that no one will lose their job. How is that possible? The rule in, in Scotland is that we um, saved in excess of 40% um, in our operating costs and our capital unit costs today are 50% of where they were in 2000. Now, when I do comparisons, and they're quite mm. complex comparisons, but they're based on some quite technical statistical models. So, um, but when I do those comparisons, um, that those are the sorts of efficiency gap that I see as being possible. Mm. Now, it is for managers to work out how they're going to make those savings. Mm. Um, you know, the savings are definitely possible. But is it possible to make those savings without anyone losing their job? Well, what I can tell you today, right, is there are more people involved in the water industry today than there were in the year 2000. Does that answer your question? I think so. Thank you. Break down, if you break down the entities, the, the northernmost entity of the yeah. four entities in New Zealand, uh, Auckland contributes about 93% of the yeah. assets but just gets four of the 14 representative seats. How is that fair? Well, it's for New Zealand to decide what, how New Zealand wants to govern its industry, right? What I can say to you is that if you build on what Watercare's already achieved, right? And Watercare is, you know, it's come a long way since it's been set up. You've been quite complimentary of Watercare. I, I have been quite, but there's still a considerable gap to what it should uh, be able to achieve, right? Um, so there is a real chance to, to um, uh, make that um, entity um, go well. Um, and it's, it's for you know, New Zealand to work out how best to arrange the governance of that. Right. Um, but the, the opportunity is there. How does New Zealand's plan compare to other countries outside of Scotland? Are there alternative reform structures outside of Scotland and New Zealand that have been effective in delivering those water services so, that we haven't yeah. considered? So, so one of the things that I think I, I, I sort of take a bit of issue with when I read some of the commentary that gets written is that what we're talking about is a Scottish model. We're not. What we're talking about is professionalising the industry, giving it the scale and the opportunity to deliver a very, very large capital mm. programme as efficiently and as effectively as possible. 
And if you look at the um, um, uh, material that gets produced by the World Bank, for example, um, the, the OECD, um, the European Union, all of them would say that scale is important. Mm. Um, and if you look at what's happening in many countries across Europe, it, there is a, a move towards greater scale. Well, thank you very much for your time, Alan. It's great to have you back in the country. We appreciate it. Thank you. That is Alan Sutherland. He is the CEO of Scotland's Water Industry Commission. Cool, Matu. That's Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. And now, mihi ki Thanks for your feedback. Just so you know, next weekend is Matariki, but we will still be here. Hey, Tera Wiki. We'll see you then, Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.